If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Carrie, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 180 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Dewaskin. Great to have you back for what's sure to be a legendary conversation that will soon be classic. My guest today, author, actress, legendary comedian, Rita Rudner. Rita shares a lot of stories, and we talk about her new memoir, My Life in Dog Years. You're going to love it, and that's coming up in just a few seconds. And in these few seconds, I want to draw attention to last week's amazing interview with William B. Davis. That's right, the cigarette-smoking man from the X-Files. Cue the music. I don't have rights to the music. Check that out. We talked about his book. We talked about acting, life, the X-Files. Amazing conversation. But don't check that one out till you're done listening to my amazing conversation with legendary comedian Rita Rudner. Enjoy. Everyone, I want to introduce you to my next guest, author of her new memoir, My Life in Dog Years. I'm so excited to be talking with comedy legend Rita Rudner. Welcome to the show. Thank you very, very much. And legend means I'm really old, but it's true. So that's good. We tell the truth here, right? This is a Only Truth podcast. Thank you, because that's I'm very truthful. So I saw you live with Dennis Miller. Oh, Dennis. Pine Knob Music Theater, Clarkston, Michigan. Wow. I looked it up. I Googled because I was trying to figure out what year it was. My best guess is that it was June 14th, 1993. Amazing. Ooh. It was so fun. Well, Dennis and I and my husband, Mark, and his wife, we were all really, really good friends. And I toured with Dennis a lot. And then it happened. <laughs> we won't say what <laughs> Something happened. I don't know what happened. I haven't talked to him since it happened. But um, do you know what happened? Because I don't know what happened, but something happened. And he went this, no, this way, whatever it went way. And it, it, it doesn't make any sense to me, but it, it makes sense to him. And that's what's important. That is what's important. So anyway, that's a, that's a memory that I have. That was, that was a great, great time. And the funny thing is they switched, it became DTE, but now it's back to Pine Knob. So if you ever uh, are touring in the area again, you could swing by there. Where was, I have no memory of so many things. Where? It was like an outdoor, it would have been an outdoor, an outdoor... Uh, amphitheater, outdoor amphitheater. I did an amphitheater. Wow. Yeah. That's unusual. I did. I remember I did a county fair once with Tony Bennett and he was really afraid to go on because it was outside and the lights were attracting a lot of moths. And when you sing, you open your mouth a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, oh, gosh, Rita, what am I going to do? I'm going to swallow a moth. But uh, he got through it and uh, he didn't. But it was scary. You know, I said, well, you could tell jokes because your mouth doesn't have to open so wide. But he said, I don't know any jokes. So that was me and Tony Bennett in the county fair. And it was good. I remember there was a cow carved out of butter. Oh, it was in a freezer. I've, been, I've seen cows carved out of butter. Yeah, it was in a freezer. And it was a cow carved out of butter. And it was really cool. And I sent a picture home to Martin. And I said, Martin, I'm in a place where they carve butter cows. <laughs> you haven't lived till you've seen a cow carved out of butter. You know, I've been doing a few of these interviews and I've, I've left a lot of things out that you helped me remember, but I don't think it was necessary to talk about the butter cow. So I'm glad I left it out. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll, we'll hit on a few, uh, a few more unique things. Your, your story, your life story is so, is so fascinating. You're always such a go-getter at the age of 13 auditioning. I was so, such a headstrong person. And I don't know, you can't create that and you can't stomp it out. It's just what, who you are at that point in your life for whatever reason. And I think, because you've read my story and you know, I think it was avoiding what was so tragically happening
happening in my real life. And I wanted to go to another life and I created that other life for myself. So that song in chorus line, everything is beautiful at the ballet. It was really, I think a lot of people go to things like that require a lot of dedication and energy to avoid things that they don't want to think about. Oh, I should be a psychologist. Not really. (laughs) But I was so headstrong. I mean, I couldn't believe the things that my father let me do and the things that I did and the things I would never let my daughter do. Going off to New York at 15, right? It was... 15 by myself. Yeah. I just uh, packed my suitcases and my father took me to the airport and I stayed at a hotel for women, Barbizon Hotel for Women, which I mentioned in my book. And it was four months before I got my equity card and my first show going around the country in the musical Zorba with two people that I hope you know, Cheetah Rivera, who is, again, she's a legend, and John Raitt, who was a big musical comedy star. Sure. John Raitt, Bonnie Raitt's father. And I have Bonnie Raitt in my book too, because I was the privilege to be one of the first people to hear Bonnie Raitt sing in person right before her album came out because she was visiting her dad on the road. How amazing was that? Yeah. And, and, and she was fantastic. And she's just one of my all-time favorite musical artists. And I do know who Cheetah Rivera is also. Cheetah. And she didn't like me very much, but I don't blame her. I was 16 and I stepped out in front of her at a curtain call and I fell down. And who would like a kid like that? But I, I apologized. <laughs> uh, that's so funny. Um, so in your book, it's just one line in your book. I, there's only one line in my whole book? No, there's one line in your book that you dedicate to this, but I wanted to mention that. Oh, okay. And that's... You said early on during this kind of time frame, you did industrial shows. Oh, all the time. I had a guest on, Steve Young. Have you seen the, uh, it's on Netflix. It's on maybe a bunch of places, but it's called Bathtubs Over Broadway. No. Okay. So it's an entire documentary. Steve Young worked at Late Night with David Letterman, which I know is a huge part of your story, but he was there for like 20 years. And during this time, he discovered industrial shows because the remnants of them were left behind as LPs. So- I know. So there's an entire documentary. Cheetah Rivera is actually in it because she performed in these shows also. They paid very well. Yeah, that's what it said. Like, like Martin Short, tons of people were in it. Oh, yeah, yeah. But Bathtubs Over Broadway, you'd love it. I bet you should check it out. It's a 90-minute tight documentary, but it's all about industrial shows. And what is it on? It's on, I think you can get it on Netflix. Netflix, I, I can do that. I, can I do a little bit of my industrial show for you now? Because I remember some of it. That is exactly what I was hoping for. Okay. My car, one of my car shows, I did many car shows. This was the Continental, the Comet and the New Marquis, the Mid-Sized Montego and the Sexy Capri. And then there's the Cougar and the Great Mark III, more kinds of cars for more kinds of people. <laughs> did I, did I do, name all the cars, right? Continental, the Comet. Yeah, that, yeah. Continental Comedy New Market, Miss Esmentino, and the second one. There's a cougar to get more kinds of car from workers, people. Yeah, that was it. And I did a lot of singing about craft cheese. Craps making it happen in Houston with as that are selling them all. It isn't surprising with their advertising. They're running away with St. Paul. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's in my memory bank and I can't get rid of it. This is, I'm loving every second of this. Do you got one oh, more? Oh, good. Yeah, I know. This is awesome. I, it was just, it's a fascinating kind of hidden piece of American theater history that most people don't know about because they were never meant to be seen. Well, I also did, I only did it one year, but I did the Millican show, which was the huge industrial show for dancers at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York once a year, um, where the stockings don't snag, tag, sag, or bag. (laughs) (laughs) They made the fabrics. So I did that one too with uh, Juliet Prowse and Tommy Toon, as a matter of fact, and Dom DeLuise. I'm telling you, these industrial shows, I don't know if they still do them or not because it's a different world now. But at that point, between Broadway shows or between summer stock, if these industrials, it was, they were very competitive and they hired really good people. So I was very fortunate to get so many of them. Yeah. I think they were huge during like the sixties and seventies. And then, well, I wasn't in the sixties, but no, I no, was no, in the eighties no. and nineties. And I did them mostly in the eighties, I'd say, cause that was my big, that no seventies and maybe seventies and eighties. Yeah. Cause I stopped doing Broadway in the eighties. So it's probably the seventies. I was watching the documentary. Sometimes they spend more money than actual Broadway shows to put one of these. Like a a corporation would spend millions. They're huge. I got flown to, I did a big one for TWA with Peter Sellers. They flew four people, me and three other girls, singers and dancers, to London. And we did it 
uh, a show starring Peter Sellers in a big theater in the West End. <laughs> so, and that's when I met Peter Sellers. It was very, because he's one of my, you know, who doesn't love Peter Sellers? He's one of the all-time comedic geniuses. And he was in the uh, dressing room and the three other girls, we decided to go in and say hello to him because he was very, very shy. And we knocked on the door and said, we just want to say hello. And he was very polite. And he said, hello. And then he created all these different characters for the TWA, which was an airline. I don't know if you know that a long time ago. And he was not allowed to do Inspector Clouseau, which was the only character that people were familiar with. And he was so good at characters that when he came on, people didn't know who he was and they didn't know it was Peter Sellers. And it was a big bomb and they spent a million dollars and it was nothing. And they had to throw it all away. Oh my God. But that was that to be flown to London and we got to stay in a hotel for a week. And oh, it was just, it was fantastic. That is amazing. So let's do more industrial shows. They were fun. I know. But you know what I do now, which I guess it's not really industrial shows. I do corporate events, which again, they're very difficult to do. I'm going to sneeze. Wait, maybe I'm not going to sneeze. I can edit it out. Feel free to- No, it's good because I like to, you never hear people sneeze in, in interviews. And I think it would be helpful to know that people are real people, but it went away. Where does it go? Anyway, <laughs> I'm not. that's not a joke for me. I'm not doing, where did the sneeze go? So, um, <laughs> what's up with, <laughs> oh, what's up with this knees? No, not this. but, um, so what was I saying about the, oh, now I do corporate events. I just did uh, one for a big um, Presbyterian hospital event and what's very difficult about corporate events is that the people did not come to see you. They came for the event and very often they've been drinking quite a bit and very often you have to follow an auction where people are spending money and they don't know what they're doing. And you get on the stage and you have to kind of corral them to see, to, you know, to get into a group again, but the people are usually very nice. And I do lots of those too. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I do stand up. I haven't done it as much lately since the pandemic, but those type of shows where they're just all of a sudden thrust into comedy. Well, if they're there to see you, Rita Rodner, I imagine it's different than when. Oh, then it's the theater and then it's yeah. great. Yeah. But these are things where you're, you're there too. It's a benefit and they've usually had to spend $500 a seat or something. And then they, so that's why maybe that's why they're drinking so much. They want to get their money's <laughs> worth. It's a little bit difficult. I did a very, the, the fewer people there are, you know, the more difficult it is. I did a um, 65th birthday event for somebody and it was just the family. And it was so hard because when it's a, it's bad enough when you know each other and then people know each other and then they don't want to laugh in front of people. But when you're related to them and they're laughing at the wrong joke and they're looking around, oh God, it's a nightmare. The best audience is a bunch of people who never met all different ages and ethnic groups and they're the best. I totally agree with that analysis. Had I been asked to wager, though, I would have said that you would have less of an issue with that because you're just your comedy is so is so clean and it's like it's not as if I laughed, I don't know that I would feel bad about laughing because it's all such relatable. Yeah, but like I have jokes where at the end it kind of goes like that. And right. I go, ha, ooh. Because <laughs> <laughs> a joke has to have a spring at the end to right. propel you into your laugh. And very often I have things that are kind of negative to end my joke with, but negative connected with the truth. Sure. Which is even more difficult to laugh at if you know the person next to you. We could do an analysis of comedy. That would be fun. That was very, very, very boring. Let's not do it. <laughs> it is interesting, though. It's just a whole. It's whole, interesting. Yeah, it is. it's a it, whole thing. It's definitely interesting how eight strangers could be a great audience at one point, the worst at another point. And like you said, if they're all, if it's the mom and the the grandma and the you know, the, oh, because the, they're out because they're getting but married. If it's, if it's lots of people with a mother and a daughter, and then lots of people who don't know each other and mother, they're the best group. But it's also interesting when you get a group that's mostly female because the laps are so soprano and there's no bass in them and they're just kind of off balance. And I, cause sometimes I do like an afternoon luncheon for a women's group or something and, <laughs> and you need <laughs> in there to kind of make it a full sound. So it, those are always difficult. That's really funny. Sorry to interrupt. Got to take a quick break. I want to thank everyone for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations. And that's how we keep the lights on. And now back to my amazing conversation with Rita Rudner. We're about to talk about how Rita transitioned into becoming a comedian. And we're back. What I found really fascinating in your story, in your book, is... So when you were finishing off, you decide when you were tailing off from your Broadway career, you're in Annie and mm -hmm. you decided to go from something that's kind of introverted to very extroverted and you decided to become 
a comedian. Mm -hmm. So what, besides the fact that I know in the book, you talk about there being not as many female comedians and that there that being- was it. That was why I said, there's not going to be a lot of competition. And when I go on these Broadway auditions, even though I was doing well for somebody who, you know, was a, a working Broadway dancer, singer, actress, I said, it's only going to get more difficult from here. I'm 27. And I've been doing it since I was, I've been on Broadway since I was 17. And it was, I didn't know it would fascinate me as much as it did. And I, it just kind of got in my brain. Why do people laugh? What makes them funny? What makes somebody else funny and sitting there and what, in fact, I say in my book, the first time I auditioned for Letterman, it was raining and people laugh less when they're wet. And, uh, and the whole place was like soggy. And if people are dry and cold, they laugh a lot more than if it's humid and they're wet, which is why when you did David Letterman, the theater was always, everyone complained about it was so freezing all the time, but it kept keeps everyone awake and alert rather than if you're kind of weighed down by the weather. Right. You mentioned that it was Tuesday. It was raining. Had a, the set was Bob like, Morton came to see me. It was just, but he said, but your material is good. Let's come to see you on another night, which was very nice of him. And he came, he, he came to see me on another night, the same material and it killed. And then I got on the David Letterman show. Of which you were a regular, right? That became one of your. I did. He he's still one of my idols, one of the all time great late night hosts of all time. I said all time too many times, but any, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I do. Yeah, I mean, he was iconic. David Letterman. There'll never be another David Letterman because he could. He had that kind of easy, cool, nerdy professor, every man. He had everything going on at one time. And it was just an incredible combination that he had that, that spoke to my generation. I agree 100%. I mean, mm -hmm. there wasn't a time where we'd get together, we wouldn't do top tens and imitations. Oh, everything. It's funny because I did with his girlfriend then, Meryl Marco, who another, she's such a funny, funny woman. And we got to go to Boston together, fly together when we were doing a show in Boston and she was doing it. And he, she would go, it meant women are, and she said to one of my favorite Meryl Marco is, isms is, you know, a woman's dessert is always located inside a man's dessert. <laughs> <laughs> Because a little, yeah, and it's true. I always take a little bit of Martin's dessert, and he can have the rest. But she was, she was very, very funny woman, and she created, I think, the pet. What was it called? Where pet. the pet has pet talent? Oh, stupid pet tricks. Stupid pet tricks. Yeah. Yeah. And so I mean, she was a very great creative mind. She did a lot. I mean, now that you're mentioning that, I'm having a flashback to a history of late night documentary mm -hmm. that I saw that where they, she was responsible for a lot of the things that we came to. And she, she said to me, you know, what's funny about me and David Letterman, we both have the same working hours and I always know what's for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So the other interesting thing in your book was, I mean, you're known, you have a very distinct, hilarious, powerful comedy style, but everyone was trying to change you along the way. Everyone, everyone except the audience. So you always have to listen to the audience. Everyone said that I, you know, should wear a big bow in my hair, come on in a wedding dress and say, I want to get married. I should be more aggressive. I should have more energy. I should be louder. I, you know, in comedy, you have to be who you are. You can't pretend you're someone else. And at that point, I think because people were so used to Joan Rivers and Phyllis Diller, who, again, I have in my book, who were such nice women, and I was friends with both of them. They were, that's who they were. They couldn't do another style and I couldn't do another style. And I just felt that doing something that isn't already there would be a good thing rather than a bad thing. And if the audience, I always go by the audience because an audience never gets together before a show and says, let's not laugh at that. It's a totally honest reaction. If it's funny, they laugh. If it's not funny, they don't laugh. So I said, I'm listening to the audience and it worked out. Amen. Mm-hmm. So the first person was like, oh, you know, what was it like? Your voice is too low or it was like. No, my voice was too high. Silver too high. Too, OK, right. Their and then, voice, it's just she said it's just not a good comedy voice. You must go to a voice coach. Meanwhile, I already done parts on Broadway and summer stock and industrials. And no one ever said that to me before. But I think it was her reacting to the fact that it wasn't. I always go on the fact where an audience has to know it's a punchline. I'm not going to say it's a punchline. So I don't want to put an emphasis on the da 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 da, -da at the end. And I think that's what she was reacting to is that it was a different rhythm than she'd heard. But Bill Maher, who's also in my book, said because Silver was so reluctant to let me go on stage. He was the MC at Catch Rising Star. And he said, I can get you on because you're funny. And he did. Awesome to Bill Maher. Kudos yeah, to so him. So my whole comedy career, I can blame on him. It's his <laughs> the amazing thing about your comedy, and I was re-watching it, some clips, some of your uh, specials, 
is it's amazing the power of how you just pause and control that silence at the end after you deliver your punchline. That's from listening to Jack Benny because he was another, he was my mother's favorite and my dad's favorite. So I started saying, well, maybe I should see that about this Jack Benny, you know, who is, and I started going to the Museum of Broadcasting because he was, a, I studied quiet people because I'm quiet. Like um, the Smothers Brothers were quiet and I thought they were hysterically funny. Albert Brooks is another one who I think is tremendous comedian. And I just looked at those people. None of them were women, though, at that point, because all women, the female comics were of the aggressive style. Even when I started to figure out who Toady Fields was, and I guess there was a, there was somebody who people told me I was like, and I looked her up and they were correct. Her name was Jean Carroll. And somebody sent me a tip of her and she would get on stage and she would be like nicely dressed and just talk and wouldn't do a whole, wouldn't put emphasis on certain things. And I think I never saw her before, so I didn't copy her. Honestly, I didn't. But it was just the style that was comfortable for me. The command of silence at the end of a joke to not go, mm, or like try and fill the space and let the audience come to you. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, it's an understated mastery. I mean, it's like, that is, it's a superpower, I think, I think. Well, that's very nice of you. It's just also, I learned it because I used to go to this piano bar when I couldn't get on at the improv and Marcy and his name was Joe, Joe and Marcy. And there was, the blender was very close to the piano and the mic was near the blender. And a lot of times I'd be waiting to tell the punchline be, until they finished the frozen daiquiri. So I think that gave me, it did, because, you know, you get to be you're nervous when you get up there. But when you start a joke and you hear the blender, you're going to wait till the blender stops. And I think it gave me the confidence to just hold it a beat. <laughs> hold it for the frozen daiquiri. Uh, that is incredible. So uh, was your first Tonight Show before or after? I'm just trying to remind myself of the timeline of the Rodney Dangerfield Young Comedian Special. After. Rodney was after. I was still living in New York when I did Rodney Dangerfield's Young Comedian Special. And then it's in my book. The, such, I had such a hard time getting on The Tonight Show that I basically had given up until he just, the, Jim McCauley, the booker, just didn't like, again, he just didn't like me at all. And he said, there's no way you're going to ever get on the show. He actually said things like that. You're not right for the show. Johnny won't, li won't like you. <laughs> <laughs> it was very encouraging. And one day I was starting to get up at the improv and he was sitting with Alex Friedman, who's Bud Friedman's wife, who Bud Friedman owned the improv. And Alex was such a nice woman. And she said, why do you leave every time she gets on? Sit there. And he, Alex was very forceful. And I had a really good set. And that's how I got on The Tonight Show. But he again tried to change me. And he said, your timing... Oh, this is, I don't know what happened here. He's your timing is off. Have you ever seen Mary Lou Retton? It, that's in the book too. And I said, you know, she's a gymnast. And he said, yes, but she's got really good timing. I went, okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll watch Mary Lou Retton if I can get on the tonight show. <laughs> and I got on the tonight show and I didn't actually get on the show. I was bumped because they ran out of time. And my first show was with Rich Scheidner and me and another person who I can't remember. Did you look it up and see who it was? It's uh, in the book. I did. Well, you know, what? I ended up only writing down Rich's name because I knew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Rich was, he's a very, very good comedian. And I didn't really, I, and I wasn't friendly with the other person. I don't remember his name, but I will after this interview is over and I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll scream his name and I'll call you. Perfect. <laughs> I wonder how many other people, Jim McCauley, Pat, I mean, if he didn't see your brilliance, I question his credentials. You know, it's like, it just seems, because you went on to become one of Johnny's favorites. I know. He would call, he would, I was one of the only people he would come into the makeup room and talk to me and just ask me how my day was. It was, and he was very shy again. And I don't blame these people, you know, because people go, oh, they're not friendly. They're not friendly. Because I did Oprah's show too. And these David Letterman, Johnny Carson, Oprah Winfrey, they have to meet thousands, probably millions of people during their lifetime. It can't be on for every single person who walks by. So, I mean, as long as they're friendly and, you know, they greet me and say, good morning, that's all anyone can ever expect from somebody who has to meet that many people. Well, it turned out he was okay. really nice to me. Johnny was very, very sweet. That is awesome. All right. So let's go back to Rodney Dangerfield. Talk, mm -hmm. talk to me about the path to the young comedian special. He saw me at Catch Rising Star. That's the thing that you have to remember if you want to be anything in show business is that nobody invites you in. You have to go find it. 
And I know so many people who sit home and they wait for the phone to ring or they wait to be asked to do something. You know, you can't, you've got to get out there and be out there every single minute and something might happen. If you're home, nothing happens. And sure enough, once I was at Hatch Rising Star, I had a really good set. Rodney was there and he pulled me aside and he said, I saw your set. Takes a long time, kids. Sometimes you never make it. And I went, well, thank you, Rodney. <laughs> and he said, but you're very funny. Would you be on my um, comedy special? I said, yes. And that was, it turned out to be a special that even though it was, when was it? It was in the 80s. 1985. 1885. So, you know, I knew you'd know. I don't really remember things like too too accurately. People still go back to the jokes that I did on that special. And like when I said, when saleswomen said, this looks much better on, on what? On fire? You know, (laughs) just silly things like that. And just think that was really an introduction to Louis Anderson, to Sam Kinison, to Bob Saget. It was really a thrill to be chosen to be on that show. That special in itself, which was the ninth annual, is, I think, iconic in itself. I mean, I think when people think of the Rodney Dangerfield Young Comedian special, that's the one they think of. I mean, that also had Bob Nelson and Yakov Smirnoff. And- I think that Bob and, and not... Were they on it, Bob and Yakov too? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I know yeah. Bob Nelson was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it's just the amount of talent that Rodney mm-hmm. Dangerfield was, was able to spot and pull together. He was a, a very, very funny man. And what was really interesting to me is that when I was, I remember I was working somewhere and Rodney Dangerfield found out where I was and I answered the phone in a hotel and he's, I, I said, hello. And he said, Peter, this is Rodney. And I went, Rod, Rodney Dangerfield? He said, yes, Rodney. I'm thinking of playing Vegas. Where do you think I should play? Because <laughs> I had played Vegas so long. What's the desert in like? What's it? And I was coaching Rodney Dangerfield through all the different venues. And I said, well, who ever thought that anything like this would ever happen in my life? That Rodney Dangerfield would call me up and say, where do I play in Vegas? That's amazing, though. That's mm. so cool. Sorry to interrupt this amazing conversation with Rita Rudner, but we got to take a quick break. And we're back with Rita Rudner, about to dive into how the Young Comedian special impacted her life. And we're back. Was this one of the things that you consider like just completely exploded your career? I know Sam Kinison, this was his big boom. Too, I was, right? he, he exploded. I, it kind of put me on a path. I, he went on a, he had a firecracker. I had a bicycle and I just, it just led me to the next one, the next one, the next one. I always said, if there was every rung to step on, I even found half a rung because I just climbed up very slowly and slowly, slowly. And what I'm proud of is that the jokes that I wrote kind of have a, a longevity and people, I mean, they're on napkins and some they're on bumper stickers and things like that. So I, I love that I can go back and say, I thought of that in my own little head. Cause before that, when I was a dancer, a singer, an actress, I was very controlled about everything I did, what I said, where I went, how long I held a note, where I was when I had to deliver a line, what, I, you know, it was just, I was almost a robot. So it was like breaking out and being free. And people ask me, you know, isn't it scary being a comedian? And I said, yes, it's scary, but it's very rewarding because you have total freedom. Right. It's just you, a mic. Me, a mic, and a dress. Amazing. And an audience. Oh, yes. That's what I learned during the pandemic. An audience is the most important part. <laughs> if you don't have that, you're not working. How was uh, Comic Relief? I used to love those specials. Very scary. I did it a couple of years and it's always a huge, one was at Universal Studios and one was in Radio City and it's panic time, but you just get together your, the tightest five minutes that you can get and you go on stage and you meet incredible people back uh, backstage. I, I met my, one of my all-time idols, Mary Tyler Moore, and got a, a picture with Mary Tyler Moore, which I have on my wall. And it's just amazing to be backstage with all those people. And even Don Rickles, I did Carnegie Hall with Don Rickles, which was, who oh, would wow. ever think that I would do Carnegie Hall with Don Rickles? So all those things are very intimidating, but it's like after you exercise, you didn't, you were scared to do it, but it was very rewarding when you were done. And Whoopi Goldberg has always been really nice to me. I have to say she's a very nice woman. I love those comic relief things. To me, those were like one of those HBO events that was just so incredible to watch. Chris Albrecht and Bob Zamuda, there they were. And they, they raised a lot of money and it was a, it was a wonderful charity. And evidently they were entertaining. And I was backstage 
growing up. So (laughs) (laughs) watching it was very entertaining. Being hosted by Robin Williams, Billy Crystal, and Whoopi Goldberg. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's a power trio right there in itself. Well, I was very, what's great about them is their ability to improvise, which I always struggled with. I still struggle with it, but it's always fun when you can do something all of a sudden that's funny. I took loads of improv classes too. When I was in New York, I found a really nice, uh, wonderful improv woman called Tamara, I think Tamara Wilcox, and I studied improv with her. So I think when, if you want to be a comedian, I always tell my daughter, because she is in music and she's in music school now, and she wants to be a singer songwriter. And you learn, you just don't learn on a narrow path. Everything that you eventually um, put yourself out to absorb information from will end up who you are. People say, was being a ballerina any help to you in comedy? Well, it kind of was because I've had the courage to go on stage and run around on my toes. So it helped the next thing where I was on Broadway, where I had the courage to audition with millions and millions of people, which gets you to the next stage. So everything informs the next thing. Absolutely. And I'm always doing things that scare me. I just got an offer to do um, to do a big part for on Magnum PI next week, and I'm going to Honolulu. And I'm really scared to do that too, but I'm going to do it. Well, that's awesome, though. That's that's so I cool. know, but that's what's so good about the show business. You never know what's going to happen and and who's going to be there. Like my husband and I have written another play because we write plays together, and one play that we did, we it turned up in. New York. We got uh, financing to do it in a small theater in New York, and then the pandemic happened, and then we didn't do it anymore. But we've written a new play, and that's scary too. But I think that's important to just not only go over the things that you've already done. I love in the book how you met your husband, Martin, and there's all Mm -hmm. these collaborations, how you guys, you know, this obvious soulmates here, and just all the creative Peter's friends. And it was nice of him to let you be Kenneth Branagh's wife. (laughs) I know. That's love yeah. right there. That's love. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was married to Martin's other best friend, Mary, uh, Emma Thompson. So he knew there was uh, there was no chance of anything <laughs> untoward happening between me and Ken and Emma. I th- did I write that in the book too? The four of us used to go on vacations together and um, we went on ski trips together and wine country. And so the four of us were all really good friends. But then, then something happened. <laughs> <laughs> And now I'm really good friends and we're really good friends with Emma and Greg, her wonderful husband. And Ken, I'm sure, is very happy winning Oscars. All right. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So let's talk about Vegas. I got the impression from the book, correct me if I'm wrong, is that Martin kind of saw the opportunity to do the, when I say smaller, quote unquote, smaller venues for longer runs. Was, mm-hmm. was this not a thing at the time? Mm-mm. So he kind of... He got the idea. You know, it's funny because I wrote this book and I can't remember what, because it got edited by other people and I got so tired of reading it. I didn't, you know, I so I can't remember what's in it and what's not. But we, Mar- Martin and I wrote a short film called, what was it called? Unfunny Girl. Yeah. Did I write about Unfunny Girl in the in the um, book? Well, anyway, so we did, it was a half hour movie for Showtime and we did it in Vancouver. It was about the least funny person. It was like um, a spin on Pygmalion. Instead of teaching someone to be a lady, it was two old um, comedy managers bet each other. One says, I can teach anyone to be funny. And the other one says, it's impossible. You're either funny or you're not funny. And they find the least funny woman in the world, me, and they try to coach her into being a comedian. We hired all these because I love I love older comedians to try to help me be funny. And Shecky Green was one of them and uh, Jack Carter and Phyllis Diller and actually Gene Barry and Frank Gorshin were the two managers. And it was it was really well cast. And Shecky Green used to always talk to Martin because he was very funny and Martin loved Shecky Green and said that Shecky Green said he worked forever in Vegas because he worked smaller rooms. And when you work smaller rooms, you could have a regular show. And he did two shows a night for years and years and years because he didn't have to attract thousands and thousands of people and it lasted longer. So that's what gave Martin the idea. Shecky Green told him how to do it. You're considered like queen of Las Vegas. I mean, you. <laughs> I was. I don't. I am. I'm working there next weekend, but I had my own theater built for me there. Yes. Oh, you were a uh, comedian of the year nine years in a row. It was a real, it, again, a different time in our lives. We decided to adopt a child and I didn't want to be somebody who wasn't there for my child. And I also didn't want to be someone who never worked again because I had to travel in order to do my comedy. So Martin and I found a place 
place where I could stay in one place, the audience could travel and we could raise our daughter. So we raised her in uh, Las Vegas and I was always there. I put her to bed. I took her to school. I was there all all the time. And she probably wishes I wasn't there so much, (laughs) (laughs) but I was, I was always there. Mom, why can't you? Oh, she was so independent early on. So I was always there to pick her up at two o'clock or three o'clock after school. And there were some kids whose parents worked and they didn't get picked up till five o'clock. And Molly, Molly, her name's Molly, said to me, mom, why did other kids get to stay in school longer? And you always pick me up. And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> what have I done here? I'm doing everything wrong. I'm trying to do it right. Mom, why do all the other entertainment moms travel? Why do I have to come home and the other kids get to stay yeah. in school? <laughs> Even when, you know, I brought her to preschool and I picked her up the first couple of weeks at lunch. And the other kids get to eat lunch at school. And you're like, okay, well, <laughs> I can see it's not going to be a problem for you being independent. And it isn't. Well, I think it's brilliant. I think a lot of people took your playbook. Celine Dion, absolutely. She comp- she copied me, gave me no credit. She said, yes, I, I am in one place and the audience is traveling and I'm raising my sons with my husband. So yeah, right. I'm gonna have to give her a talking to. <laughs> exactly. Two million tickets, at least two million tickets, over two million tickets sold. Longest running solo show in Vegas. I mean- Right. And you were in like multiple, right? You started with the MGM and then they just kept building theaters for you. Well, that the MGM was a strange place. But before, I mean, I played every every hotel on the strip probably because every time I went to Vegas, it did really well. And we took that. That's one in my book, one of my sayings that I heard Linda Opes, actually, it was uh, something she said, ride the horse in the direction it's going. And my horse kept going to Las Vegas and people liked me there. And when I um, I worked for Richard, Richard Sturm was the entertainment director at Bally's. And I used to play Bally's all the time with Dennis Miller and Louis Anderson. And then when he went over to the MGM, I did loads of shows. Dennis and I worked the MGM all the time. And then there was a show, there was a small showroom. It was, I think, 350, 400 seats right in the middle of the casino. And they didn't know what to do with it because they wanted to have this show called The Crazy Girls, but they changed it to La Femme because it was naked French women. And, but they were dressed with lights and it was like, oh, it's, it's naked, but it's classy. Yeah. Well, they're naked. (laughs) But so they were having trouble negotiating a contract. I said, one of the problems was dressing rooms, which is very ironic because they didn't wear any clothes. But um, and then I went into this room and started selling out and it sold out for six months. And then the the naked ladies, the naked French women came and they took over the theater and the vice president of the MGM was made president of New York, New York. And he said, I'll build you a theater. Come over here. And I said, yes, let's please. And that's when Martin and I sold our house in Beverly Hills and we moved lock, stock and barrel. We just changed everything. We left our furniture. We left our dishes. We took our cars because we had to drive. But otherwise, we just said we're starting a whole new life here. And we adopted our baby and we lived in Las Vegas. And it was a very successful time for me. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. I love the part of the story where... They offered you a headlining gig that you turned down with, I think it was with Richard Jenny, who's amazing. Yeah, but we were very good friends. I've, saw, I've seen him twice. And I remember when he was once at our com- the comedy castle, Mark Ridley's comedy castle. Mm-hmm. And they would tell me, they go, uh, Jenny, he'd do like, I think even through Sunday, which was normally through Saturday. And he's like, he never did the same thing twice. <laughs> He was, well, he was one of those naturally funny people. And I'm more of a a studied funny person, but we worked a lot together. Martin took the two of us to Australia and um, it was me, Richard Jenny and Larry Amaros. And we did a show in the Gold Coast and then in Sydney. And then Martin actually opened up a comedy club in Melbourne after that. So we're comedy, comedy, comedy here. What was the question? Let's go back. Oh, the question was, it was the empowerment to say, no, a woman can headline without a man. Yeah. So Richard uh, Sturm called, first of all, uh, because Martin and I said, you know, maybe we should just take a break because, you know, you've worked a lot and let's figure out our lives from here on, whether we want to write movies, what do we want to do? And then we get a call and Richard Sturm said, would you like to headline or co-headline with Richard Jenny in the MGM theater? And Martin said, 
no. And I said, Martin, why did you say that? I want I like to work. And Richard and I are really good friends. And he said, it's time you can't go backwards. You have, you're your own person. And if you can't be by yourself, just don't work in Las Vegas anymore. You don't, because I had been headlighting the Desert Inn and the Monte Carlo and all these places by myself. And he said, don't go back to co-headlining. That's the wrong thing to do. And sure enough, a couple of weeks later, uh, Richard Sturm called up and said, be your own headliner and go into this, it was called the Catcher Rising Star Theater at that time. And we changed it to the Cabaret Theater. And that was uh, the turning point for our lives in a good way. In a great way. Oh, my God. Yeah. Because yeah, I got to be a mummy. That's so great. And I still got to tell jokes. <laughs> in your book, I think one of the events you mentioned, Las Vegas Woman, Woman of the Year in 2006, but you happen to mention, I think, that Danny Gans was there. and. Mm-hmm. I had the pleasure of of seeing him before he passed away. What what an amazing, that was an amazing show as well. Well, he was another reason that it was signaling Martin that we should go to Las Vegas was that Danny Gans, who was a very talented guy, but wasn't really well known, was sitting in one place in a smaller theater making a fortune. And he said, well, he's not even on HBO. You're on HBO. <laughs> Let's go there. You'll be more famous. And I'm sure Danny Gans sold out his, you know, his whole career. He was a huge, huge hit in Las Vegas. And I did his uh, celebrity golf tournaments. And then I called him up and I said, will you do the woman of the year for me? And he said, absolutely. And he showed up and he was terrific. I did that with him and David Brenner. Amazing. One of my favorite stories in your book, it's actually two stories, but I kind of linked them together. One was Debbie Reynolds showing up and calling you out for not calling her out during Mm. the show. But then the party that ensued after. And Louie, Louie Anderson. So Louie and I were working at Bally's together and Debbie Reynolds was next door and with Rip Taylor, who's a very funny comedian who used to flip his wig like this Mm -hmm. all the time. And she came to see my show and I didn't know that she came to see my show and I just did my show and she came backstage and said, you didn't mention I was in the audience. I said, I didn't know. And he's, it's a tradition. Everybody knows. I'm sorry. I didn't know. She said, well, I have another tradition. We all get together after the show and I play the piano and I sing and we invite all the celebrities and all the, the, um, the other shows and we have a big party. So I'll see you tomorrow night. I mean, she was at powerhouse and I got to be good friends with her too, because she eventually opened up her own casino, the Debbie Reynolds casino, which I um, helped her do a lot of promo for that when she opened up her casino. And she was just a bundle of energy, this woman. She was amazing. So Louis, of course, goes, yeah, let's do it. That sounds good. Let's do it. So who leaves? Who's the first one to leave at this party is Louis Anderson. Of course, my husband, Martin, who's Mr. Antisocial. I mean, he's behind the scenes, but he's not somebody who doesn't. He's pretended he had a cold and he stayed upstairs. So it's me and Debbie Reynolds and Rip Taylor. And she's, you know, she's there and then they're, and I don't, I mean, I have a glass of wine sometimes. That's about it. And I, finally I had to leave and there were some other people I didn't know and people showed up and left and it was a big party. And then the next day we got a, the bill <laughs> <laughs> and evidently De- Debbie drank. <laughs> she had very, very good time, but she was a very, such a talented woman. What a story. Talk about a, a life story. Oh my God. Amazing. Yeah. And I also did, um, wrote for the Oscars with Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher was such a funny, funny person. And that whole episode is very sad. Oh, very sad. Very sad. Yeah. Uh Carrie was an amazing author. Everyone thinks of Princess Leia immediately, Uh but her writing was amazing. Amazingly, her mind was so skewed differently from anybody else's. And she was just a a very, very funny, darkly funny person, which I love. So much so. So so the other story in the book that I thought was a funny kind of bookend to the Debbie Reynolds was you at the Liza Minnelli show. And oh, Liza Minnelli does call you out. I know. Because <laughs> Felix, I went with the president of um, the Luxor because he was the one who built me the theater at New York, New York. And he wanted publicity for Liza's show. And he said, come do it. And he told Liza I was there. And Again, Liza, such a huge, huge talent and so unique. And she got to the show and she was amazing. And then she introduced me at the end of the show as one of her very, very closest friends. <laughs> and, then, and then I didn't know, did we put the picture of me and Liza in the book? I'm not sure. I think There's so. Pic- I, think yeah. I, can, I can double check. And then Liza came out at the end and she's just a different person or her eyelashes were gone and she was in a little bathrobe and she was this little tiny, this little tiny person, but had this huge personality. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, back to so Steve Martin writing for the Oscars for Steve Martin. Mm-hmm. 
So he did your show that you and Martin produced called Ask Rita, right? It was so nice to do that. And I called him up and I said, well, he was just a man of his word. And he came in and we, I had a show called Ask Rita, which Martin produced because we found a theater in the back of the MGM. They closed the theme park and there was an empty theater and Martin sees an empty theater and just, he smells it. Empty theater, empty theater. I'm going in, I'm putting on a show. On our honeymoon, we were in the um, the hotel and he'd go in the conference room. We could do a show here. I mean, he's just like, that's what he does. He found this theater and we found an old set that had been in the back of the theater. And we produced a, we got a syndicator, a syndicated show called Ask Rita. And I think we did like 60 episodes. We were doing five episodes a week. It was or five episodes a day and for weeks to get them all done. And Steve Martin was very nice. And he came and he did two of our shows. That's really cool. It was a fun show. It was people write comedians letters about problems they're having in their lives and we make fun of them. <laughs> it was <laughs> funny. I got a lot of good people to do it. Betty White did it. Phyllis Stiller did it. Howie Mandel. And, and they were funny shows. But it just, at that point, we did all we could do. It was a homemade show. Even if it was syndicated, we would, Martin, this is how we did it. Martin and I would get all the tapes together and satellite them himself around the, <laughs> the country at night and using the local television station. And there came a point when we had to say, you know, we're exhausted. We didn't do it anymore. And then, and they ripped down the theater. And then the next theater we found was too expensive. And we said, you know, the world is telling us not to do this anymore. So we stopped doing it. Does it exist anywhere? I tried to find it. I just found like a 30 second monologue of you on YouTube. In a garage. We have them in our garage. We can't put them on because it's for everyone was a SAG after and we would have to go back and we would need to do it legally and pay everybody the fees and go back. Oh, it's just not. Unless it got stolen and uploaded. Yeah, and somebody, (laughs) okay, we'll have to do it. But I I don't want anyone to be angry at me. I'm not saying leave the door open at three o'clock. Well, we had some funny shows, let me tell you. It was unfortunate to read the part about when Leno took over the Tonight Show and Helen Kushner. He doesn't. Yeah, he did. He wasn't. He's been friendly with me since, but he just was. I was. It was his manager, and they didn't want anyone who was a Johnny guest. And uh, she was a very um, aggressive woman. I think is the way to say Helen. uh, Talk about Helen Kushner. Right. And she knew what she wanted, and she wanted it the way she wanted it, and she was going to tell you exactly the way she wanted it, and she didn't want me. (laughs) (laughs) She said, "You're a Johnny guest, and you're just the kind of guest we don't want on the show." I said. (laughs) Okay, let's not be on the show then. (laughs) I got the impression it was all Helen. I didn't, I'm Jay, everyone says is the nicest guy in the world and. Maybe he was just being manipulated and stuff like that. I mean, I saw the movie. I don't know the I don't know the inner workings of what went on. All I know is Helen Kushner got on the phone and in no uncertain terms told me that I should do something to myself. <laughs> <laughs> not a nice woman. You were the first woman to sit on the dais at the Friars Club for the Chevy Chase roast. I just certainly was. And it was a horrifying experience. And I had a huge migraine. And I, again, because I always say yes, when it's something that's interesting that I haven't done before, even if it scares me, and that scared me. And I did it because Dennis and I did it. And he sat next to me because we were such good friends. And he would just keep going and saying, Rita, what are we going to do? This is a very strange. And I said, I don't know, at least you swear, you know, I don't know what I'm going to (laughs) do. I decided to get up and swear, but swear incorrectly was the only thing I could do. And I just said, (laughs) I said I was going to do my act, but I was going to intersperse obscenities where I thought I could. And I did that and it went over really big and it was very funny. And I never, I said, and I never want to do this again. Thank you very much. Cause they were really dirty. I mean, it was under the guise of raising money, but they had to have me to maintain their tax status because they had to have women and they'd never had a woman before. So I was the one they picked to help them with their taxes. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. Lucky me. Lucky you. Sometimes I say, yes, it works out. Sometimes I say, yes, it doesn't work out. I like that as as it was sort of like your mantra that weave through the book that you like to say yes more than no. Absolutely. I say say yes to, you know, things that will that make sense, not things like um skiing or racquetball. Let's <laughs> 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 say yes to other things that make sense. Oh wow. 
Amazing. Well, I mean, there's a million other stories, but I'll leave them for someone else to kind of dive in and cherry pick with you. But I loved your book. And it's called, oh, I'll hold it up. Here it is. Oh, the book. Yes. Rita Rudner, My Life in Dog Years. It's because it's divided up into my five dogs. And one of my dogs is right. Is he, is she here? No, she was sleeping under the desk, but I could introduce you to Betsy. She's my latest little rescue and she's a great dog. Betsy, come here, babe. Betsy, come here. Let's see if she listens to me. I said she was found on the streets of Hollywood with a broken leg and an unproduced screenplay. Here she is. Oh. <laughs> Aw, Betsy's on the cover of the book. I know. And she weighed seven pounds and she was so weak and she couldn't eat or she couldn't play. And now she's a hefty 12 and a half pounds and she doesn't stop. And she ran right in when I called her. That's so so cool. I always have to have a dog and she's a little bit nervous. So I'm her um, emotional support human. <laughs> I love how the book is broken up into the time that you have for your dogs because it's that's so relatable in itself. Just how everyone remembers the animals, whether it be a dog or any animal in that your particular life. But yeah, it's it was great. I really loved it. My dog is a, a little Maltese. I have a four pound Oh. White Maltese named Lola. It's always good to have a dog. Lola. Oh, that's I love that name. That's good. And Doc Severance had had a really, really like the bulldog, like a bully, bully bulldog that came in and her name was Lily. <laughs> and I thought that was such a good name for a bulldog. And when I did the Tonight Show, Doc Severance would always come in with Lily. Aw. I, lo- I do love the story about uh, how your, your one dog was uh, part of your act for so many years. Oh, bonkers. Yeah. He played all the casinos. He's the only dog that I had who smoked a cigar and read um, backstage (laughs) variety. (laughs) He was born to be in show business. (laughs) More stories. That's why the book is all the page. That's why all the writings on all the pages. (laughs) Such an amazing book. I loved it. Thanks for uh, sharing an advanced copy with me. Thanks to Martin for hooking me up. Good to know Martin. He's (laughs) I get it. Thank you, Martin. Come say you don't want to say hello. He never wants to say hello. Okay, just yell hello in your pretty English accent. There, that was Helen. I love accents. (laughs) Uh, Rita, this has been a pleasure and it's been an honor. Thank you. Thank you for talking to me. I appreciate it. And thank you for taking the time to read my book. All right. How amazing was Rita Rudner? Check out Rita online at RitaRudner.com. Definitely get her book, My Life in Dog Years. There's a lot of other books that Rita's written. You can dive into those as well. When Rita comes to your town, definitely don't miss the opportunity to see her live. One of the funniest people in the world. All right. Well, with the interview over, that can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at Hashtag Roundup. Download the free, always free Hashtag Roundup app at the iTunes App Store or Google Play Store. Tweet along with us, and one day one of your tweets may show up in a future episode of Classic Conversations. Fame and fortune await you. This episode's hashtag is Hashtag Broadway for Dogs, the ultimate Broadway dog mashup game. Brought to us by Sneaky Varmint Tags, a weekly game on Hashtag Roundup. Obviously inspired by our amazing guest, Rita Rudner, who got her start on Broadway, who loves her dogs. Who knew there'd be a hashtag out there? Mashing them all up. Hashtag Broadway for Dogs. Tweet your own. Tag us on Twitter at Jeff Dewaskin Show. We'll show you some Twitter love. In the meantime, here's some hashtag Broadway for Dogs tweets for inspiration. Little Shop of Howlers. Little Shop, Little Shop of Howlers. Kinky Barks. Rock of Snossages. I can't see the color purple. Best in Showboat. These are some amazing hashtag Broadway for Dogs tweets. The color purple. Hello, Collie. Avenue Pew. My Fair Lady and the Tramp. Mutt Side Story. The King Charles and I. Hashtag Broadway for Dogs. We're not done. Damn your knees. Fiddler on the Woof. Barefoot in the Bark. Beagle Juice. Mary Poopins. Weenie Todd. A Gorgas Line. And our final. And our final. Hashtag Broadway for Dogs tweet. Chasing Cats. All right. Go tweet your own hashtag Broadway for Dogs tweet. All these are retweeted at Jeff DeWaskin Show. Show them some Twitter love. Well, with the hashtag over and the interview over, it can only mean one thing. That's right. Episode 180 has come to a close. Can't believe it just flew by. I want to thank my very special guest, Rita Rudner. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. 
listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. Also, why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word, and we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations. Classic Conversations.